Let's generate our motivation. So check the state of your mind right now. Are there particular thoughts going on? Are there particular afflictions prominent? If there are a lot of thoughts, focus on the breath a little bit to help stop the chattering mind. If there's an affliction present, think of the antidote and contemplate that for a minute or so. And then when the mind is calm and free of extraneous thoughts, then think of the kindness of sentient beings and also think of their dukkha. And by contemplating these two, generate compassion, wishing them to be free from all the dukkha of samsara. And then, based on compassion, generate the wish to do something about the situation of sentient beings and alleviate their dukkha. And then know that in order to be able to do that, we need to purify our mind and develop all of our own good qualities, in short, to become a Buddha. And so generate the bodhicitta. And then feel happy at having the chance just to even 
contemplate uh, bodhicitta and try to generate it. Yeah, because how many people in this lifetime have that opportunity just to think about that? Yeah, not so many. So even if our bodhicitta is a little bit uh, fabricated, (laughs) yeah, still, just by trying again and again to generate it, we're planting the seeds in our mind to be able to do so. Okay, so we're still investigating samsara, nirvana, and Buddha nature, and we're uh, still on the chapter about afflictions and karma and their seeds and latencies. So at the the last section, I think it's the last section in that chapter, yep, is virtue, non-virtue, merit, and roots of virtue. Okay, so we hear these terms all the time, but we may not be totally clear on what they mean. Okay, so the principal cause of happiness is virtue, and the chief cause of suffering or dukkha is non-virtue. Okay. Being able to discern the difference between these two so that we can practice the former and abandon the latter is essential for making wise choices in life and for accomplishing the path to liberation and awakening. So two things are difficult. To tell the difference between dukkha and not dukkha Okay, now the first kind of dukkha, the, the dukkha of pain, we, we can all tell the difference between pain and not pain. That one's not so hard. The second one, the dukkha of change, which is what we usually call happiness. In other words, when the suffering of longing for something or not having something decreases and the happiness of having it simultaneously increases, we call that happiness, even though it's a temporary state, and eventually that happiness will that was coming up will then go down. Okay, but when we feel happy in samsara, we don't think of it as dukkha, as an unsatisfactory state. Yeah, we're very focused on the dukkha of pain and wanting to avoid that. But the the dukkha of change, we kind of like, and we don't recognize it as dukkha. You know, my stomach is full, I live in a nice place, I have friends, and my life is going well, and I'm successful. And we think that's, you know, joy. Yeah. And if it were, then it would never decrease. And it would never bring new problems. But whatever happiness we have brings new problems with it, which start small, and so we don't see them, and then they grow bigger. 
and then that happiness also uh, vanishes. We've all been very happy at different times in our life. Where is that happiness now? Yeah, where is it? It's not here. If that happiness was really ongoing, we would be wherever we were with whoever we were with, enjoying it now. But we aren't, because that happiness faded away. Okay, so we're here because we realized that something in our usual way of thinking about happiness is incorrect. Okay. So that second one, you know, discriminating happiness and suffering, we're not always so good with that one. The third kind of dukkha is the pervasive dukkha of conditioning, just having a body and mind under the influence of afflictions and karma. Okay? Do you think that's unsatisfactory? Or do you think, gee, I have this body, and, you know, gee, my body can give me so much pleasure. I can eat good things. I can have sex. I can listen to music. I can go dancing. You know, my body brings me happiness, and I have this mind, and, you know, it brings me happiness, and I don't want to give them up. Definitely, I do not want to give my body up, because that would mean that I would die. Yeah. So do we really think that having a body and mind under the uh, control of afflictions and karma is dukkha, is unsatisfactory? Only when the body and mind hurt. Yeah, the rest of the time, we think it's fine. Yeah, and even when our body hurts, we don't want to give it up. Yeah, we just want it to feel better. Okay, so that so discriminating really between samsaric dukkha, dukkha and happiness is quite difficult. And then to discern be, the causes of each one is also difficult because we usually think the causes of happiness are some external person object, or situation. Yeah? And the causes of our misery are also some specific person, object, or situation. Okay. Now, according to the Buddha's teachings, are those the actual origin of our happiness and unhappiness? Some of you don't look like you're so sure. Yeah? Yeah, really. I mean, the cause of my suffering, you know, my teachers, my boss, my husband, my kids, they're also the things I love the most. But, you know, they're also driving me nuts sometimes. Yeah? So we don't see that the actual cause of happiness and suffering is inside here. Okay, so just figuring this out 
what is dukkha, what is not dukkha, what's the cause of dukkha, what's the cause of, of happiness? We need a lot of contemplation on that. Otherwise, you know, we're going to keep doing the same old thing, looking for happiness, but winding up with more pain. (coughs) So in general, virtue is that which brings an agreeable result, and non-virtue is that which brings a disagreeable result. Again, sometimes we can't tell really the difference between an agreeable result and a disagreeable. We can see when things are agreeable in this very moment and we're happy. But we can't always determine if that's really a good result in the long term. Yeah. Because when you get the promotion, you feel great. That really is a promotion what is going to increase your self-esteem. Yeah, we think it is, but is it? Yeah. If it were, then we wouldn't be seeking the next promotion after that one. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here virtue includes constructive intentions and actions, both of those. And these leave the seed of virtue on the mind stream, and these seeds ripen into agreeable results. Okay, so while, while mental states and actions may be virtuous or non-virtuous. The seeds of karma and the latencies of afflictions, uh, and also the seeds of afflictions, are neutral. Okay? This is because virtue and non-virtue are linked to our intention. An action becomes virtuous or non-virtuous primarily due to our intention. The seeds and latencies, however, do not have that strong, active, intentional element. They're what's left over after the action. So because they lack that strong, active, intentional result, result, the seeds and latencies are neutral. Okay? So thus we speak of the seeds of virtuous karma, because the actions were virtuous, but the seeds, what's left over, are neutral. Okay. So we speak of the seeds of virtuous karma, for example, not the virtuous seeds of karma, because the seeds themselves are not virtuous, they're neutral. We talk about the latencies of non-virtuous afflictions, not the non-virtuous latencies of afflictions. Okay? So people get this uh, confused a lot, so it's important to remember this. Similarly, pleasant or unpleasant ripening results. What's a ripening result? 
Hmm? The rebirth. What's another term that's often used for ripening result? Maturation result. The maturation result. Okay. So, similarly, the pleasant or unpleasant ripening results of virtue and non-virtue are neither virtuous nor non-virtuous. Okay? So, here what we have is virtue can give way to something that's neutral, and virtue can ripen into something that's neutral. And the same with non-virtue. Okay? Non-virtue can go into a seed of non-virtue, which is neutral. And it can also ripen in a lower rebirth, but the rebirth itself is neither virtuous or non-virtuous, okay? Because the rebirth, uh, you know, we talk of it very often in terms of the body, and this body is neither virtuous nor non-virtuous. Okay, it just is. So don't get confused. Something can be in the nature of dukkha, okay, unsatisfactory in samsara, but that doesn't mean it's non-virtuous. Okay, the body is dukkha in nature, but, yeah, in itself, this thing, flesh and blood, is not non-virtue. Okay. So being born in a healthy human body is a result of virtue, but the body itself is ethically neutral. We can use the body to create virtue and non-virtue, but the body itself is neutral. Okay. Possessing wealth is an agreeable result of virtuous actions of generosity, but being wealthy itself is neither virtuous nor non-virtuous. And we can use the wealth to create virtue, we can use the wealth to create non-virtue. Okay, so this is something very interesting to think about. Yeah, that just getting the good result, the result itself is not not uh, virtuous just because it's a happy result. The cause was virtuous, but the result wasn't. Yeah, you think you know a, a bunch of dollar, a bunch of hundred dollar bills is virtuous? Yeah, it doesn't have any ethical dimension. It's just paper. Okay, so it's our intentions and our actions that create the virtue or non-virtue. Okay, so what does virtue refer to? So a Sangha's compendium of knowledge speaks of five types of virtue. Now here we come into... Uh, something that we see often in, in, in how they categorize things, that something may be categorized as a type of something, like the next five are types of virtue, but that doesn't mean all of them are virtue. 
Okay, because in this list of five, there are some that are virtue and some that themselves are not virtue. Okay, so if you haven't read ahead, listen well here, and even if you have. Okay, so the first type of virtue is natural virtue. Okay, so the, the natural virtues include the seven virtuous mental factors, okay, faith, integrity, consideration for others, non-attachment, non-hatred, non-confusion, joyous effort, pliancy, conscientiousness, non-harmfulness, and equanimity. So Venerable Sanke Kadra went through these with, you know, in one of her recent courses. So these are called natural virtues because their nature is virtuous. When any of these mental factors arise in the mind, the mind is virtuous. And also, they are called natural virtues because they naturally bring a pleasing result. Okay. Then the second type of virtues are related virtues. So these are the primary consciousnesses and mental factors that become virtuous because they are accompanied by virtuous mental factors. So remember when we have a, um, a cognition, there's the primary mind, yeah, and then you have, which is using one analogy is like a light, and then we have other lights that are also shining in with that light and mix, uh, mix with it, okay? So the uh, five omnipresent mental factors, okay, what are they? What? Contact, feeling, discrimination, intention, and attention, okay? So those five by themselves, yeah, without being affected by anything else, those five and the primary consciousness are, are not virtues or, or non-virtues, okay? They become virtuous or non-virtuous when you have another mental factor that is conjoined with them in that same mental state. Okay, so you have your primary mind, you have the five or the um, uh, the five omnipresent minds, plus uh, you have conscientiousness and you have integrity. So those two are natural virtues, and they make the primary mind and all the other mental factors virtuous because they're all together in the same mental state. Okay? It's like when you have, you may have some broth and five different vegetables, but when you put chili in, it affects the whole thing. Okay? <laughs> so, yeah, something like that. Okay, so when compassion is present, 
the mental primary consciousness and the mental factors of intention, feeling, and so forth that accompany it become virtuous. Okay? So the related virtues, you know, when they're mixed in like this with something virtuous, then the whole thing becomes virtue. Okay? Then the third one is called subsequently related virtues. So these are the seeds and latencies of virtue established by virtuous consciousnesses and mental factors and by virtuous actions. For example, the karmic seed created by the mind of generosity. Okay, so what's that karmic seed? What is it? Is it virtue? Is it... It's neutral, okay? But it was created by a mind that was virtuous. Hmm? So seeds and latencies are not actual virtues. This is an example of the name of the cause. In other words, in this example, the virtuous path of action being given to the effect, the seeds and latencies of virtue. So you find this a lot uh, in Buddhist studies. The name of the cause, or, or something that applies to the cause, is given, the, the name is also given to the effect. Okay? So the cause of um, a virtuous seed, a, a, a seed of virtue, yeah, from, let's say, generosity, that cause the mind and mental factors, yeah, is virtue. And because it's virtue, we give the name to the result, which is the seed of of generosity that's left on the mind stream. So that seed itself is not virtuous, it's neutral. Okay, so that's what it means. We give the name of the cause to the result. Sometimes we give the name of the result to the cause, too. Yeah? For example, when you plant the garden, you say, uh, I planted cabbage or I planted squash. Actually, you didn't plant cabbage or squash. You planted the seeds of cabbage or the seeds of squash. But there you gave the name of the result, <coughs> the vegetable that's going to grow, to the name of the cause, the seed that you actually planted. Okay. So, you know, our speech is often very inexact, but we know what we mean anyway. You know, when you say, come in and say, we planted carrots today, I know that you didn't take a bunch of carrots out of the refrigerator and go and put them in the dirt. Okay. <laughs> Okay, then the fourth um, are virtues due to motivation. Yeah, so these are the physical and verbal actions motivated by the naturally virtuous mental factors. Okay, so the action of making a donation to a charity is a physical virtue when done with a generous motivation. Yeah. So there's an intention in the mind that's virtuous, an intention of, uh, let's say, non-attachment, 
that leads to the physical action of making the donation. Okay, So that physical action is also a kind of virtue, according to some of the schools. Okay, So Vibhasikas and Prasangikas assert that virtue includes both minds and forms. So they consider virtues due to motivation. Okay, the things you had the motivation and then you acted. So the virtues due to motivation, which are physical and verbal actions, motivated by virtuous mental states. Yeah, the Vibhasikas and Prasangikas say that these actions are virtues. Okay, since Pratimoksha precepts are form, according to these two schools, the precepts are virtuous forms. Okay, so the Pratimoksha uh, precepts, the uh, lay man and lay woman five precepts, the one day precepts, the no, uh, the novice male and female precepts, the t- nuns training precepts, and then bhikshu and bhikshuni precepts. Okay, so these are all considered forms by those two schools because you can see them. Yeah, I mean, uh, you, you when somebody. Uh, you know, gives when somebody kills somebody, when somebody is generous, you can see the action. Okay? So the action is considered form. Yeah. According to Satantrikas, Chittamajans, and Svatantrikas, only minds can be virtues. They don't consider the actions themselves virtues, just the motivation. Then ultimate virtue is the fifth one. And ultimate virtue is emptiness because realizing it eradicates all obscurations and enables virtue to flourish. Emptiness, however, is not an actual virtue because it is permanent and itself does not produce results. Okay? So emptiness is called virtue because the mind that realizes it is virtuous and that mind can free us from samsara. But emptiness itself is, is permanent. It doesn't change. So it, it itself cannot be the cause of virtue. Okay. So this list of virtues is not exhausted. Other exhaustive, the uh, ver- other virtues include, but are not limited to, a Buddhist speech and the thirty-two signs and eighty marks of a Buddha. Okay, so the the Buddha's speech with its sixty qualities, uh, that is virtue. It's virtuous form. It can be heard by the audio consciousness, auditory consciousness, and the 32 signs and 80 marks of a Buddhist body are also virtue, and they can be seen with the eye. Okay. So even one, uh, a moment of natural virtue can have far-reaching results. When the mental factor of conscientiousness arises in the mind, 
the primary consciousness and mental factors associated with it all become virtuous. The physical and verbal actions done with that motivation are also virtuous. While the karmic seeds of those actions are neutral, they carry the potency for agreeable results to arise. And for that reason, they are called subsequently related virtues, although they are not actual virtues. And like we said before, the actual results from those actions are not virtuous. Okay. So commensurate with the five virtues, there are five non-virtues. So natural non-virtues are mental factors such as attachment, anger, jealousy, and resentment that are non-virtuous by nature. Okay, so all of these, they arise in the mind, they are non-virtuous. We have to be careful here with the word attachment because sometimes it's used. Uh, they'll say, for example, that Chenrezig uh, is attached to all sentient beings. But it doesn't mean Chenrezig has samsaric attachment. What it means is that uh, Chenrezig cares so deeply and fervently about all sentient beings. But that's not the attachment that's being, that's not actual attachment. It's called attachment. Okay. You'll get used to it. A lot of things are not what they're called. Okay? (laughs) Okay, then the the second of uh, the five non-virtues are related non-virtues. They're the mental primary consciousness and mental factors that accompany a naturally non-virtuous mental factor. Okay, so you're... fed up, and you're having a temper tantrum. Uh, Of course, we're adults, so we don't have temper tantrums. We we are enraged. Does that sound polite enough? Yeah. But but that, uh, you know, that mental state of being enraged or resentful or spiteful that is one of the related non-virtues. Okay. Then third, subsequently related non-virtues are the latencies left on the mind by non-virtuous minds and mental factors. Okay. So like the we talked before, the seeds and the latencies, they are not, they weren't actual virtues. Here they're not actual non-virtues but they're ethically neutral. Then four, non-virtues due to motivation are physical and verbal actions done with a non-verbal, with a non-virtuous motivation. Okay, so that's according to the Vibhasakas and the Prasankikas. Then the ultimate non-virtue is, for example, samsara, which breeds non-virtue although it is not an actual non-virtue. Just as emptiness was not an actual virtue, although um, realizing it 
frees us from samsara. Okay. So in general, virtuous karma and merit are synonymous. In the context of samsara, they are actions that have the, uh, or yeah, they are actions that have the ability to bring favorable results. Calling an action virtuous or meritorious emphasizes that is it is psychologically healthy and ethically irreproachable. So that's good to think about, you know, when you have a virtuous intention in your mind, psychologically, your mind is healthy at that moment. Yeah, you're seeing things in at least a conventionally accurate way. You're not, you know, you're not seeing them as illusions, which, with, which requires the realization of emptiness, but you're not uh, putting a lot of excess garbage on on things. So psychologically, the mind is healthy, and ethically, the mind is irreproachable. You know, it's virtuous, and nobody can come along and say, oh, you had a stinking motivation. Well, they can come along and say that, but it doesn't mean it's true. Okay? In terms of spiritual progress... Virtuous actions enrich the mind. Okay. So they enrich, I mean, well, maybe I'll go through all these and then go back and explain them. They enrich the mind, establishing the foundation for generating the realizations and excellent qualities of arhats, bodhisattvas, and Buddhists. Okay, so one of the effects of doing virtuous actions is that it fertilizes the mind. Purification is like clearing the mind out of the non the seeds and latencies of non-virtue we've created. And, um, you know, doing uh, accumulating merit is this process of enhancing the mind. So if the mind is like uh, the ground that we're, we, we're going to plant the seeds of listening to teachings in. We have to prepare the ground. So we have to take out the bubblegum wrappers and the shards of glass and uh, what else are you finding <laughs> in the ground? All sorts of stuff, okay? So you have to take all that out. That's like purification. And then you have to put some per- fertilizer in. So that's like creating merit. Okay. Then, when we listen to teachings, something goes in. Yeah. But if if the mind is like so, so full of garbage and the seeds from from previous non-virtue, then even we hear teachings, it, we don't understand them so well. You know. And you can witness this when people come. And they first hear teachings. And some people go, wow, this really makes sense. And other people are going, what in the world? You know, what am I doing here? This, what these people are talking about is nonsense. Yeah. So you can see who's coming in with a mind that has a lot of non-virtue seeds 
obscuring it. And it, it, it's not only the non-virtue that can do that. It's also, uh, you, you know, you may have cleaned the, uh, the ground and taken out, you know, the glass shards and so on. But if you don't put water and fertilizer in, you can put those seeds in and nothing's going to grow. So similarly, we may have done some purification, but if we don't collect merit, then, you know, again, we're not going to be able to understand the teachings. And although this sounds, I mean, the, the gardening example, there's a lot of gardening examples in Buddhism. Um, I've just been working this whole time with, you know, things not produced by self, other both in classes, so you know feel like you're in a gardening class talking about seeds and sprouts all the time. But, um, yeah, you can see after you've done like a purification retreat, if you've done Vajrasattva, if you've done 100,000 prostrations, okay, if you've uh, worked on accumulating merit, you've done 100,000 mandala offerings, Okay, or you, or taking refuge. Well, all the practices both purify and and accumulate merit. Okay, but they're usually more balanced towards, or they're usually more emphasizing one or the other. But you can tell after you've done that when you uh, sit down and read a book or go to teachings, uh, you understand things in a way that you didn't understand them before. Yeah. And so it's very interesting. Uh, those of you who uh, have, have been around a while, you know, because sometimes we feel like, you know, my mind's not changing at all. Uh, but go and uh, read the notes of a teaching that you took five years ago or read a Dharma book that you read five years ago. And see if you understand, or listen to the teaching, that's even better, you know. And see if you understand the teaching better now than you did five years ago when you first heard it. Yeah. And that's when you'll really see the effect of purification and accumulating merit. Yeah, you can, yeah, you can begin to see them. Hmm. Now, I remember, um, yeah, after doing Vajrasattva retreat, which I told you it was my meditation was mostly the object was myself. And occasionally I got distracted and thought about Vajrasattva. But despite that, when I went back uh, that autumn to Kopan again to listen to teachings, I was going, oh, wow, you know, this is entirely different than it was last year before I had done the, the Vajrasattva retreat. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. In the context of the two collections of merit and wisdom, Merit is that which um, it should have primarily in here. Primarily has the capacity to give rise to the form body of the Buddha. 
Okay. In general, the expression root of virtue refers to a virtuous mental factor, although it also seems to indicate the seeds of virtuous karma. Now you hear root of virtue, root of non-virtue, you hear these terms a lot. They are one of the ones, root of virtue, that I've asked many teachers, what does this mean? Yeah, because, I, you know, what's the difference between virtue and root of virtue? I haven't gotten a clear answer. Have you gotten one? You know? They're, 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 I mean, they're different terms, but they seem to kind of mean the same thing. Okay? In Vasubandhu's Abhidharma Kosha, mm-hmm. it says the roots of virtue are the three, um, what do they call it? Like non-attachment, non-anger, Anger and... and non-ignorance, the, th- mm-hmm. the three that are opposite to the three poisons. So that's one explanation of root of, of virtue. Of the roots of non... Roots, roots of, of virtue. virtue. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So in general, the expression root of virtue refers to a virtuous mental factor, although it also seems to indicate the seeds of virtuous karma because they say that uh, wrong views and anger can destroy the roots of virtue, but they're not, they're going to uh, destroy or inhibit the seeds of the virtuous uh, karma, not the actual mental factor. So it's, yeah. Okay. Uh, Shanti Deva's engaging in the Bodhisattva deeds and uh, Chandrakirti's supplement contain extensive discussion about anger destroying the roots of virtue. Okay. So when anger destroys the roots of virtue, or when wrong views or other heavy non-virtuous actions cut the root of virtue, it prevents future agreeable results from coming about even when suitable conditions are present. So if you remember before, we talked about um, uh, um, anger and wrong views, uh, diminishing, reducing, and thoroughly thoroughly making them disappear. Thoroughly, what was the word? What? Or third, no, it wasn't. Uh, yeah, it was something like that, you know, thoroughly eliminating or something like that. Okay. So the diminishing meant that uh, the karma, you know, and when we say karma, sometimes we mean the action, sometimes we mean the seed of the action. But the karma could ripen, um, but just not uh, uh, in a strong way. And reduce means that it um, it won't ripen again so forcefully. It's it's the strength of it is reduced, and then uh, thoroughly whatever what thor- thoroughly consumed means that the seed is still there, but the good result doesn't come about. Okay. So when human beings cut the root of virtue, it affects only the root of virtue related to the human realm, 
the root of virtue of the higher realms remains. They may still encounter fortunate uh, conditions in the future and again regain their root of virtue. Okay, then there's a reflection. Uh, review the different types of virtue, which are actual virtue and which are just called virtue, and make examples of each of them in your life. Okay, let's do that. Okay, example of a natural virtue. Kindness. Hmm? Kindness. Kindness. Okay. Uh, an example of related virtues. Kindness. Okay. Okay. Uh, subsequently related virtue. Yeah, of what? Yeah, okay, this is the latency of the mind of kindness. Uh, virtues due to motivation? Yeah, speaking kindly to somebody, yeah, or acting kindly. Um, and the ultimate virtue? <laughs> yeah. Maybe realizing the emptiness of of that. Yeah. So it it says that emptiness is the ultimate virtue. Um, so the emptiness would be number five, but the mind that realizes it would be a virtuous mental. So that would be number one. Uh yeah, that wisdom mind. It might be actually the the second. The related ones, because it's talking about the whole mental state. Usually, when we talk, it could. If you're talking about just the mental fact of wisdom, it would be the first. If you're talking about the whole mental state, it would be the second. Okay. 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 What about uh, what's natural? An example of uh, a natural non-virtue. Anger. Okay, a related non-virtue? Yeah, yeah, that would be a good example. Um, and, and also the whole, the primary consciousness and everything. A subsequently related non-virtue? Yeah, uh, okay. The uh, non-virtues due to, to motivation? Uh, you have to have a, a um, the, it has to be a verbal or physical action. Guilt isn't a isn't. Oh, killing, I thought you said guilt. Okay. Hey, you aren't working. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so mind killing with anger. Okay, and then the ultimate non virtue is samsara, but it's not really a non virtue. Okay? Because samsara, what is samsara? It's our contaminated aggregates, right? Yeah. And among our contaminated aggregates, 
Some of them are um, mental, mental states, mm-hmm. and it seems that that those could qualify, at least some of them, not all, but some of those could qualify yeah. as actual non-virtues. Yeah, yeah, those would, would qualify as actual non-virtues. But the body, which is, you know, when we talk about the five aggregates, often they emphasize the body. The body wouldn't be non-virtuous. And just one other little splitting of hairs, when it says that natural non-virtues are mental factors such as attachment and so on, but attachment, only attachment in the desire realm is a non-virtue, right. not in the upper realm. So yeah. it's not all attachment that would okay. be non-virtues. Okay, so we can put <laughs> attachment in the desire realm. can add that too. So um, back to the samsara. So also there would can be in the continuum of a samsaric being there can be neutral mental factors. Oh yeah. But those would still fall under ultimate non-virtue because they're part of samsara. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's just samsara itself is not samsara as a whole. Yeah. Is not non-virtuous, but some things that are part of samsara. Are non-virtuous, right? But but it's listed as number five, the ultimate non-virtue, samsara. But it's not an actual non-virtue, right? Yeah, because the actual whole of samsara, you wouldn't say is non-virtuous, although elements of it are. Okay. Okay. So that's then the point two. Review the different types of non-virtue, which are actual non-virtue and which are simply called non-virtue, and make examples in your life. Yeah. So this, is, again, is something interesting to be aware of as you go through the day. Okay. When is there something virtuous? When is non-virtuous? Which kind of virtue is it? Which kind of non-virtue is it? Yeah. And, you know, if you, if you play with these kind of categories during the day, it keeps your mind focused on the Dharma. Whereas if we don't, you know, we may get really irritated at somebody, but we don't recognize that it's non-virtuous. Whereas if you're really trying to work with these things and notice them in your life, when you're irritated immediately, you'll say, oh, this is a non-virtuous mind. And then you'll want to do something about it. Going back to, um, again, that only the Baibashikas and the Prasangikas see the um, action as form. Mm -hmm. Have we talked before about how it came out that the Dharma Guptaka Vinaya also recognizes the um, precept body when principally they're not Prasangika? Um, people, when, when you say you're this or that school, even in ancient India, those are loose classifications. Not everybody in that group has the, the same thing. You know, like you can say Republican and Democrat. Do all the Republicans have the same view of, on every issue? Do all the Democrats do? No. Those are kind of loose terms. Okay. 
And also, um, well, what's interesting is from the Tibetan viewpoint, all the uh, Vinaya schools, the Dharmaguptaka, including, it's one of the 18 Vibhasaka schools. So they would say that. Uh, that's according to the Tibetans. When you say to the Chinese, they go, Vibhasaka? You know, we've hardly ever heard of them. They're, the 18 schools are not all Vibhasaka. Vibhasaka is something that came about later with the Mahavibhasa treatise. So they have totally different view. And the, and the uh, Theravada secret also. Okay, yeah? In the Chinese commentarial tradition, you know the preset body is a seed in your eighth consciousness. You are taught that at the foreordination. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that corresponds to Chita Madra. But, yeah. But when you visualize it, it's like it's form coming into you. Yeah, interesting. Okay. But you can still do the Dhammaguptaka uh, ordination and not see this, not think of the seed going into your eighth consciousness. Yeah. So this is what I mean. You know, you can, we shouldn't get too catechismic, like catechism. Yeah. Catechism. Catechismic? <laughs> it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Okay. So chapter six is karma, the universe, and the ev- and evolution. So uh, this chapter is is quite an interesting chapter. Um, some of it, there's some things from the Pali scriptures that are talked about here that the Tibetans don't talk about. Um, and then some of it is from a personal discussion that I had with His Holiness. In fact, one of the very first times I went to see His Holiness was, I don't know, late 70s, early 80s, was a long time ago. And I asked questions about this. And um, and His Holiness said, wait. He then called uh, Gareth Sparham, who was a student at the, uh, at the dialectic school, to come and translate for it. Just, um, you know, he had a translator there already, but he wanted you know, a translator that was really specific. So that was quite interesting. Okay. True dukkha includes sentient beings and our environment. Okay. So not all non-dukkha, not all dukkha is non-virtuous. The environment isn't non-virtuous. So the environment is a true suffering, but it's not non-virtuous. So you have to keep these things straight. Otherwise, you think, oh, everything that is a true suffering is non-virtuous, and that's not true. Or everything is that is an affliction is non-virtuous, and that's also not true. Okay? For example, ignorance. 
Yeah, it's an affliction, the root affliction, but it itself is not non-virtuous. Okay, so uh, true dukkha includes sentient beings and our environment. In the preceding chapters, we discussed our unsatisfactory state as sentient beings and our life experiences, as well as the, those are true sufferings, as well as true origins of these, ignorance, afflictions, and uh, polluted karma. In this chapter, we'll look more closely at how the true origins of dukkha bring about the environments in which we sentient beings dwell. Okay, so the origin of the universe. Yeah, okay, where's our physicist? Yeah. So, similar to today, a vibrant topic of discussion among both both religious and secular people in the Buddhist time centered on the origin and destruction of the universe. As recorded in the sutras, and there's many sutras in which uh, you have these people coming to ask these questions to the Buddha. Okay, Uh, so as recorded in the sutras, they asked, was the universe eternal or not eternal? Transient or permanent? Finite or infinite? Did the universe have a beginning or was it beginningless? The Buddha refused to answer these questions because the people who asked them were thinking in terms of an an inherently existent universe. So given their state of mind, thinking that the universe is inherently existent, then no matter how the Buddha could have responded, these people would have thought that either the universe existed inherently or did not exist at all. And because holding either of these views would have harmed these individuals, the Buddha chose not to respond. And he didn't respond, and of course people criticized him. Now what? We're supposed to be omniscient. Why aren't you telling us the right answer? Okay, this kind of stuff. So at other times, the Buddha refused to comment on the origin of the universe because it was not relevant to the alleviation of dukkha and the attainment of liberation. Okay, and so here's where we have the famous simile where the Buddha spoke about somebody getting shot by an arrow and before he sought medical treatment to remove the arrow, he wanted to know who made it and what was it made out of and all this kind of stuff. Okay, which is very interesting if you're going to do a trial by court, but when you're bleeding and you're injured, it really doesn't matter what the arrow was made out of and, and who, you know, who shot it and, and how many miles per hour it was going and so forth. Abhidharma texts and the Kala Chakra Tantra, however, commented on the evolution of the universe in conventional terms. Okay. Nowadays, scientists research these same topics 
leading to fascinating dialogues between Buddhists and scientists, some of which I have attended. Okay, so there are several approaches that could be taken regarding the origin of the universe. First, we must investigate if it was created by a cause or if it arose causelessly. Okay, this kind of analysis, His Holiness does a lot. Okay, so you're investigating something. Was it created? And and it has to be a functioning phenomena. Was it created by a cause or was it not created by a cause? Okay, if you say that it, that something arose because it wasn't uh, without a cause, then you're going to have a hard time giving an example of something that arose without a cause. Some of the Travakas give examples like the roundness of peas and the colors of a peacock feather, and they say that, that those things uh, exist naturally without a cause. Yeah, but we all know that there are causes that make the pea round and causes that make the the uh, colors on a on a peacock feather. Okay, that nothing comes, no functioning thing comes about without a cause. Okay, so most people find causeless or random production unacceptable. So ran, you know, random production kind of it's it's very similar to without a cause um and you get i remember how i learned about random production <laughs> yeah you can tell me if this yeah when they do experiments where there's lots of pegs and you from in the okay so there's a thing like this there's lots of ups and down pegs and then in the center above the pegs, you know, halfway in the center point, you start start dropping ping pong balls or some kind of balls. And if you, you drop a whole lot of them, at the end, the shape is going to be a bell curve. And they say that that just happens randomly. All, each ball where it is going is going randomly, and that shape is random. Am I describing it correctly? Yeah, more or less, kind of. Uh, maybe not so much. Uh, give her the mic. <laughs> it's a slightly different use of the, of the word random. Uh-huh. Right, because there's still a cause in terms of how it's colliding. Right, mm-hmm. we can watch it and, and see that, but the right. randomness in terms of you can use probability to describe that distribution, not worrying about those little differences and just modeling it probabilistically. Mm. So I think it's a slightly different use of the word. Right yeah. Now. Okay. Yeah. So randomness is more associated with probability. Yeah. Okay. Um, but most people find causeless or random production. Uh, unacceptable because in our daily lives we witness effects arising from causes. Okay. Furthermore, it would be difficult for anything to function and change 
if it lacked causes and conditions. Why? Because permanent phenomena cannot interact with other things to produce something new. So here, impermanent, yeah, means something that is produced. It doesn't mean um, uh, not eternal, you know. Something like the mind stream is impermanent, it's changing every moment, but it is eternal. Yeah. And similarly, permanent means static, not changing moment to moment, but something that is permanent, like can um, become into existence and also go out of existence, but it does that without a cause. Okay. For example, yeah, we talk about the thermos. So the thermos is a functioning thing that uh, came about due to causes. The emptiness of the th- of the thermos, the lack of inherent existence of the thermos, is permanent. But the thermos and its emptiness are one nature. And when the the thermos came into existence, when it arose due to causes, its emptiness of inherent existence was there too at the same time. And when the thermos breaks, its emptiness, which is permanent, disappears, no longer exists. Okay? That clear? Yeah. Okay, so permanent phenomena cannot interact with other other elements to produce something. Yeah, among those who accept that the universe ro- arose due to causes. Okay, so your first thing is, did the universe arise due to a cause or not a cause? Okay, so you throw out not a cause. And most people say it arose due to cause. Then, what was the cause? Okay. So, um, theistic religions such as Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and some branches of Hinduism, speak of an external creator. Most scientists attribute the origin of the universe to the Big Bang. Some Uh, asserting that one Big Bang uh, began all existence, others saying there may have been several Big Bangs as different universes began. Yeah, so one one bang after the other one. Yeah. Um, Non-theistic Samkhya's, So the Samkhya's are a Hindu philosophical school, the ones we talked about yesterday, okay? Uh, So the non-theistic Samkhya's and some other traditions speak of a primal substance out of which everything was created. Buddhists speak of the interplay between the laws of nature and the law of karma and its effects. Okay. So quite different ways of attributing the cause. And that's a lot of Impramnavartika, uh, what Geshe Tapke, when he was teaching that to us, 
went through was all these differentiations. For example, when say when people say there's a cause, but the cause is permanent. Okay, like uh, a uh, God, God, you know, arose without a cause. He, he doesn't change, and yet he causes the whole universe. You know, and then the idea that things are uh, basically permanent, but kind of impermanent too. Yeah, we talked about this, I think, yesterday as well. And then that idea. And then, so, so what you do is you're, you go, you're going through really uh, refining what could possibly serve as causes. Okay? Something permanent cannot be a cause. You know, an external creator cannot be a cause. Um, a, a chili seed cannot be a cause of a wall. Okay? So, so something is produced at, by a cause that is impermanent, and it's not just sufficient that, it's, that the cause is impermanent, but the cause has to be concordant. It has to have the ability to produce that specific result. Okay? So, and, and we see lots of times, you know, people will, will, will attribute uh, discordant causes as the cause of something. Yeah? We, yeah. Uh, invert, invert, what's the med? The, what? Ivermectin, you know, is the cause of uh, healing from COVID. Yeah? Well, you can assert that as the cause, but it's a discordant cause. It's not going to bring that result. Okay? So there has, there's many conditions for something to be the proper cause of something. <laughs> An example, you know, at the beginning, the, uh, you know, the pandemic is a hoax. It's non-existent. There was no cause for it, and it doesn't exist. Yeah. Or it's going to, uh, you know, we were told that, then we were told it's going to go away by, by Easter, yeah, and it didn't, you know, that was the whatever they attributed to making the COVID go away by Easter was the wrong cause. Yeah, that wasn't going to work. And so you, you can go through, uh, you know, and then Clorox, <laughs> yeah, or what was it, hydro, what was the other one, hydro? Hydroxychloroquine was the treatment. Okay. So, you know, there you see examples of discordant causes being said to be the causes. Okay. And I was thinking about it because we, we 
often kind of look around nowadays and say, like, what is happening that people are, there's so much crazy stuff. But when you look historically, people were always putting out crazy stuff. You know, they just didn't have Facebook and social media and all that kind of stuff to put it out on. But, you know, that's why we all call it snake oil, you know, because there, you know, there used to be all these people going around in the States selling snake oil. What is snake oil? Is it oil from the snakes? Or you take the snakes and put them in oil and the oil becomes snake oil? You know, but there were, you know, all these people proposing all sorts of things, you know. And when there were vaccines for smallpox, people did not want to take it. Yeah, they refused to take the vaccine for smallpox. So, it, you know, we're just having a rerun, but times a thousand because of, of rapid communication these days. Anyway. Okay. Uh, difficulties arise when we posit one original cause or event as the source of the universe with its mass, space, and time. If there were a single initial cause for all existence, be it a cosmic substance, dense matter, or a preceding intelligence, okay? So if there were just one cause, like one of these things, what triggered that one cause to give rise to the universe with all of its complexity and diversity? So if there's one cause, that one causes cause in order to bring a result has to have conditions. It has to be affected by other factors to produce a result. So if you say, oh, there's only one cause for the universe, then you're going to come up to something that's logically impossible because one cause cannot produce something without being affected by other conditions. Okay. So change, such as the production of the universe, involves a complex interplay of many factors that influence one another. Since even the existence of something small like a flower involves multiple causes and conditions, needless to say, this is the case with more complex entities such as the universe. Okay, so we're going to stop here because we don't have time. This The whole part that comes is quite important, so I don't want to rush through it. Any questions, comments? Mm-hmm. Since precepts are a virtuous form, that seems to mean we are creating virtue every moment that we keep them. What happens when we have precepts, aren't breaking them, but get afflicted? Okay, it's true. As long as we have the precepts, then we are constantly creating virtue. 
Yeah. When we have a non-virtuous thought, okay, the precepts are still there, their form. But then in the mind, you have a non-virtuous thought. So it's, it's something different. Those two can exist together. Yeah. Just having a non-virtuous thought doesn't contradict, uh, doesn't, um, uh, what do you say, transgress a precept. Uh, when we're talking about the Pratimoksha's precepts, when we talk about Bodhisattva and Tantra precepts, yes, there a thought can create a downfall. Mm-hmm. Virtuous thoughts create or cause negative karma if we don't manifest them through actions or speech. No. You can have a virtuous thought, and if it doesn't get manifest through action and speech, it's still a virtuous thought, and it still leaves uh, good seeds in your mind to have similar kinds of thoughts in the future. And then by that, the power of your virtuous thoughts increases. Mm-hmm. Is shamatha meditation and vipassana a form of purification? Usually, you would say that you do purification and creation of merit before doing shamatha and vipassana. Okay? Because... Uh, especially with shamatha, with creating serenity, single-pointed concentration, and so on, when we look at the hindrances to those, um, many of those hindrances that interfere and prevent us from concentrating are non-virtuous mental factors. Yeah? And also the seeds, when the mind is very obscured, it's harder to concentrate. So um, usually, you you know, you would do purification, creation of merit, um, either before doing shamatha, you know, in terms of focusing on one and then focusing on the other long term, or in one meditation session, yeah, we usually would take refuge, we do... Um, the seven limb prayer, which is for purification and creation of merit, mandala offering to create merit, then you would do your shamatha meditation or your vipassana meditation. So you're always emphasizing purification and creation of merit before doing these practices. Yeah. Um, in terms of shamatha, is it itself... Pliancy, which is uh, one element of getting shamatha, that's one of the 11 virtues. Okay. Um, yeah, Vipassana, you're in, uh, if you're using, you, see, it's, it's interesting because you can develop concentration. Um, and then use it for non-virtuous uh, actions, okay, like black magic and stuff like that. So, you know, is shamatha itself virtuous? That's hard to say. The mental factor of, of pliancy is, 
Yeah. And maybe when you're, um, when you're generating uh, shamatha, you would have to practice a lot of non-attachment, non-anger, things like that. Because if you didn't, then you would have attachment and anger. And those are hindrances to developing deep concentration. Okay. Um, Vipassana, the, the wisdom that you would use in, uh, a Vipassana would be, vir- would be virtuous. Okay. If, uh, you're really, if it, well, it would depend. You would have to have a virtuous intention too, I think, of, um, you know, wanting to be free of samsara, wanting to attain awakening and so forth. They say that, you know, there's six different um, rec- remedies recommended when you do the four powers, these six different practices. And the best one is mm-hmm. meditation on emptiness. Mm-hmm. So meditation on emptiness, I would think, definitely purifies. Yeah, but what when Vipassana means different things to different people. Yeah, it depends people. on what... what is your object yeah. of Vipassana. So that, that's what I was referring to. Like, you know, many people say Vipassana, and it's watching the breath and watching the mental states. Yeah. So that's different than the Vipassana that's analyzing emptiness and generating that wisdom. Okay, let's, last question. Uh-huh. I'm trying to draw connections between the teachings today and some prior teachings. Between what? Uh, the teachings today and, and some of the prior ideas. And mm-hmm. we discussed the difference previously between seeds and latencies of the afflictions, mm-hmm. which seem to relate to that first category of non-virtues, right? The, the first, the natural non-virtues. No, the no. seeds and latencies. Uh, uh, sorry, the afflictions. The afflictions, the afflictions are the yes, are natural non-virtues. So I, I can see how there are seeds of the natural virtues. Are there latencies of the natural virtues? Yeah. I think they would be there. And, uh, you know, they would not be a cognitive obscuration because they would continue on to Buddhahood. So just because it's a seed or a latency doesn't mean it has to be eliminated. So it'd be good, you know, you can meet together and take some of these different things and do the the thing with the points. What, you know, two things, what's both? What's this one, not that one? What's that one, not this one? What's neither? And that's really, really helpful to understand these different kinds of of categories and what's considered what. Okay.